Welcome to Gospel in Life. This month, we're looking at directional signposts through history that point us to Christ. All through the Old Testament from Genesis to Jonah, you see signs that point us to Jesus. Listen now to today's teaching from Tim Keller on pointers to Christ. Tonight's scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 28 through 33. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The word of the Lord. So this is actually the end of Jesus' training course that he gives to his disciples the very first. Uh, we, we've, we've said each week that uh, from chapter 13 to 16, Jesus is teaching his disciples just before he dies. And chapter 17 we're going to look at after the Easter season. But chapter 17 is actually a prayer so uh, where Jesus is praying to his Father. So this is actually the first... This is the end, the conclusion. I keep wanting to say first. This is the last. This is the end of his teaching. <clears throat> and he's summarizing things. In fact, we're going to show you in a minute that verse 28, in some ways, is a summary of everything he's been saying. Verse 28 explains who he is, why, how he came, why he came, and what he accomplished. It's all there. But the key to this whole thing, the very end of the end of the end, is in verse 20, 33, where he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Notice he is saying that I've told you these things. That's the, that's the doctrine about Jesus. He came from the Father, entered the world, leaving the world. He's been teaching him about himself. The doctrine leads to peace. But only if you do two things. Which, one of which is take heart when you have trouble in the world. So there's the, there's the doctrine that leads to peace, but only if you do certain things with it. So let's, let's break down what we're going to learn from this passage in under two headings and open those two headings up. One is there is no peace without doctrine. But then secondly, there's no peace unless you do something with the doctrine. See, we all want peace. We all want, uh, uh, we want contentment, we want confidence, we want inward quiet, poise, we want groundedness, we want peace. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you my peace. But he doesn't, just, he doesn't just zap you with it, it's through learning these things. He says, I've told you these things, it's all his teaching about himself, summarized in verse 28. He says, I don't just give you peace, you have to believe these things and then you have to do something with them. That in times of trouble, you have to take heart. We'll open that up. So let's first of all say, what is this doctrine that you have to have in order to have peace? And then what are you supposed to do with it? What is it? What do we do with it? So first of all, what is it? 
Okay, I keep telling you, 28 is remarkable, and actually it's a problem for me, not for you, because verse 28 sums up everything. It sums up where, who Jesus is, and how he came, and what he came to do, and what it affected, and it's basically a summary of everything he's been saying, not only in John 13 to 16, but it's actually a summary of everything in the Bible. Okay, so you want to cover that? How much time should I take to give you everything in the Bible? <laughs> Um, uh, <clears throat> we can either take two weeks or two minutes, and so let's, let's get closer to two minutes. It won't be two minutes. But look at these four things. I came from the Father. That's Jesus saying that I am not just a regular human being. I didn't, I'm not just born. I came into the world. I, I existed before. <clears throat> then he says, and I entered the world, so I'm incarnate. So I'm a divine person who has come into the world through the incarnation. I became a real human being. I'm leaving the world now, and of course, as you know, if you've been coming, every time he talks about leaving the world, a, a departing, he's talking about his death. So you see, he says, here he's talking about his pre-existence as a divine being. In John chapter 17, we're gonna see where he says that he shared divine glory with the Father from all eternity. So he's a divine being, but then he's entered the world and became a human being, and now I'm leaving the world, I'm going to the cross, and then I will ascend to the Father where I will be your advocate. That's everything. Let's just, let's just take a moment for a second. Um, the four things. One is, he says, I came from the Father. He's claiming here to be God. And uh, Alexander McLaren, who was a, a, a Baptist minister in Manchester, England, 150 years ago, he writes this. I know this sounds like the sort of thing you've heard other people say, but he said it first. He says, nothing is more plain than that over and over again, Jesus reiterated this tremendous claim to have dwelt in the bosom of the Father long before he lay on the breast of Mary. If we know anything about Jesus Christ, we know that. And if we cannot believe that he thus spoke, we know nothing about him on which we can rely. I leave with you as a plain fact that the meekest, lowliest, most sane and wise of all religious teachers deliberately and repeatedly made this claim to be God, which is either absolutely true and lifts him into the region of deity or is fatal to any pretensions to be either meek or modest, wise or sane, or a religious teacher to whom it is worth our while to listen. It's all or nothing, McLaren says, and he's right. Because Jesus, you can't take Jesus as just a, a nice guy or a teacher of love. Because he claimed to be God so often. I came from the Father. I shared glory with the Father. He claimed it so often that either he is who he said he is or you shouldn't have anything to do with him. But most of all, Jesus is saying, if you want my peace, you have to believe these things. And one of these things is his claims to be God. So if you're a typical New Yorker, I think you kind of, okay, Jesus, like, you know, he's got good, good teaching and things like that, but I don't know if I want to get into all that doctrine about his preexistence and being divine. Well, you have to, or else there's no, there's, you have no integrity if you invoke his name, if you invoke his example, if you, if you follow him, if you, but you don't take this seriously, that he claims to be God. And he says, unless you accept this claim, you can't have my peace. But then the second thing, he says, I entered the world. 
which means even though he was God, he became a human being. Uh, Dorothy Sayers was a fiction writer who wrote uh, novels, uh, detective novels, and she invented a, um, a character named Lord Peter Whimsey. Maybe, maybe you've read or seen some of them. And about halfway through the novels, is if that suddenly a, a, a love interest shows up, Harriet Vane. It's actually very interesting. Uh, Dorothy Sayers was, w wrote detective novels. Harriet Vane, in the novels, writes detective novels. Um, uh, Dorothy Sayers was one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford. Uh, Harriet Vane, the, the character Harriet Vane in the novels, is one of the first women who ever graduated from Oxford. And a lot of people who, who study Dorothy Sayers' literature actually believe that what she did was she looked into the world she created and she looked at this character she created and she saw him being very lonely and she fell in love with him and she wrote herself into the world and saved him. I'm here to tell you that that's exactly, almost exactly, almost exactly what, what God has done. See, he's looked into the world. He sees us. We created. He created us. And he created us, <clears throat> but he loves us. And he sees us flailing and sinking, so he writes himself in to save us, just like Dorothy Sayers did. Now, <clears throat> um, as lovely as that is, I want you to see how important it is to the third thing. He is the divine son of God. I came from the Father. B, he's the incarnate, he's an incarnate human being. I entered the world. C, now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Now when he says I'm leaving the world, he's actually saying I'm going to the cross. By the way, well, <clears throat> two things to tell you. Well, there's only maybe one thing to tell you. Notice what I've always liked about this um, is when he says I'm leaving the world, I'm departing. It's all, he's very much in control. He doesn't say, somebody's going to grab me and drag me away and kill me. Well, they will. But you see, when he says, I am leaving, it's his way of saying, this is something I've chosen to do. This is something fully voluntary. If you were here when we were going through John chapter 15, where Jesus is claiming to be the good shepherd, you know, where he says, he says, uh, I, I, I lay down my life for my sheep. And he says, no man takes my life from me. I freely lay my life down. Remember that? Um, when, he is not under any obligation. He doesn't have to do this. So he, when he says, I'm, when he says, I freely lay down my life, that's love. It's so voluntary. There was an old a teacher of theology, uh, John Murray, who, when he would teach on John 15, or this passage, when he, he would stress how voluntary was Jesus' love for us. And there's a place where, um, uh, some place where, where, where John Murray says, when Jesus says that I, no man takes my life from me, I freely lay it down for my friends, I love you. It, Murray says, it's almost like Jesus Christ took his soul in one hand and his body in the other and tore himself apart. It, uh, no one did this to me. I know this was the only way to save you, and I'm doing it freely. So I came from the Father, I entered the world, now I'm leaving the world, see? I'm not being dragged, I'm leaving the world. And finally, I'm going 
back to the Father. Now, when he says, I'm going back to the Father, he's not just, it's not just talking about a, a, a change in location. As you know, we've talked about it before. He is sending. He, he dies on the cross. He pays for our sins. And because he pays for our sins, he's raised from the dead, and he ascends, and he's seated at the right hand of God. And also, the Bible says he stands as our high priest or our advocate. Now, we've talked about this before. Uh, in fact, we had a whole sermon talking about uh, Jesus is our advocate. Um, but you know what? You may not have been here then, and besides that, it's an important part of, of this passage, so we have to at least recap it. What is that talking about? The, the Bible says that when you believe in Jesus Christ, he stands before the Father as your advocate. It's a metaphor, but it's getting across the idea that even though you are in yourself unacceptable to God because of your sins and flaws, unacceptable to a holy and just God, in Jesus Christ, he only sees Jesus, when he sees you, he doesn't see your flaws. He doesn't see your record. Isn't that amazing? I read I, I, years ago, and it was like 25 years ago, I saw an article in the New York Times about something interesting that was happening on Long Island. But, you know, 25 years ago, they were really starting, the municipalities were beginning to really jack up the property taxes out there. And people were getting socked with these huge property tax bills. And everybody was in an outrage, but when they tried to look at the, at the tax code, the tax code, if you know anything about this, in New York State, especially in places like Long Island, the tax code is so complicated that nobody could figure it out enough to, you know, everybody, everybody said, I'm just too stupid. I can't, I'm not smart enough to understand the tax code, so I can't raise, you know, an appeal or a claim or a, or a complaint. The tax code was beyond everybody. I'm just too stupid to understand the tax code, but I just know I'm doing something wrong. Well, one guy got really upset, and he said, I'm going to master the tax code. And so what he did was he studied for weeks and weeks and months and months, and he finally mastered the tax code, and he came to the conclusion that the municipalities were actually jacking up the prices too much, jacking up the tax too much. So he began to represent people in court who went to court against the municipalities, and he won case after case. That's the reason why it was in the New York Times, was the municipalities were very upset with this guy. <laughs> why? Because he was, he was smart enough, he made himself smart enough, everybody else was stupid when it came to the tax code, where all the rest of us are dumb, but he was smart enough that he would represent him in court, and here's the interesting thing. You might say, even though they were dumb in themselves, but in their advocate, they were smart. They were smart in him. They were smart enough to win the case. Now, this is an imperfect analogy, because when God sees you in Jesus Christ, he doesn't just see you as smart, <laughs> though a lot of us need that too. He sees you as beautiful. I mean, what, 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 morally, what does, what does Jesus Christ look like to the Father, who has perfect eyesight and can perceive all things? What, think about Jesus' goodness, his heroism, his, his commitment, his holiness, his glory, his wisdom, his love. What does he look like to the Father? He must look like an absolute moral beauty. And the Bible says, you believe in him, that's what you look like because God sees you in him. It's just a way, it's a metaphor, but it's, it's, a, it's a gorgeous metaphor. It's a way of saying that because of the cross, because Jesus died for you, now you're not just you're not just given a kind of like okay a pass you, you are actively loved by god you're not just forgiven you're not just pardoned that's that would be great enough look there's nothing better than to be respected by somebody you respect
When I was a young minister and somebody I idolized said, oh, that was a good sermon. When someone you respect respects you, wow. When someone you love loves you, that's even better. When someone you adore adores you. But see, this goes, this, is, this goes beyond all that. Now, look, we have to move on. It's not enough just to believe this doctrine. But do you see why the doctrine is important? There was an article in the New York Times magazine today called, Why Can't Silicon Valley Fix Our Online Harassment? It's actually a very good article. Kind of a scary article, but it's also nothing that probably anybody who ever goes online is surprised at. That as social media has developed, basically online harassment is going higher and higher. There's more horrible, uh, there's, women are constantly getting uh, 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 death threats and rape threats and non-white people are, have racist stuff thrown at them all the time. And it's just getting worse and worse and nobody seems to be able to stop it. But the article's author at one point says, we live in an astounding technological advancement. There's deep sea drones, there's live streaming virtual reality. Why can't we brainstorm our way out of this? You know, we're technologically advanced. Why can't we fix this? And the answer of, of online harassment is what? It's not a technological problem. It's a human heart problem. The internet, the anonymity of the internet has actually shown us we are more wicked than we ever dared think. Because it takes away the kind of guardrails, it takes away the shame, the sort of thing that makes you kind of keep it inside. But when you get in a place where... People can say whatever they, whatever in their heart. There's awful things in their hearts. There's awful stuff. So it's a hard problem. Well, here's my point. We don't need one more teacher of love to tell us love one another. We know we should love one another. The world's problem is not that we don't know we should love one another. The world's problem is we can't do it. We don't need another teacher of love to tell us what to do. We need a savior. We need somebody to give us a new heart. One of the biggest obstacles for people to believe in Christianity is that they think they already know all about it. But if we look at Jesus' encounters with various people during his life, we'll find some of our assumptions challenged. We see him meeting people at the point of their big, unspoken questions. The Gospels are full of encounters that made a profound impact on those who spoke with Jesus. And in his book, Encounters with Jesus, Tim Keller explores how these encounters can still address our questions and doubts today. Encounters with Jesus is our thanks for your gift to help Gospel and Life reach more people with the amazing love of Christ. Request your copy of Encounters with Jesus today when you give at gospelandlife.com give. That's gospelandlife.com give. Now, here's Tim Keller with the remainder of today's teaching. So first of all, there's your doctrine. And Jesus is saying, unless you believe the doctrine, there's no peace. There's no possibility of getting peace unless you believe this. But it's not enough just to believe it in the abstract. It says, I've told these things so that in me you may have peace. Well, how? And here it is. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, I think there's two principles here that's telling you well, actually, go up a little further. In verse 29, after Jesus makes this little summary thing here in verse 28, you know, it really is remarkable. I don't, you're never going to find more doctrine packed into one sentence. It's amazing. You know, the preexistence of Christ, the incarnation, the atonement, and the, ascent, the resurrection and ascension, and session at the right hand, it's all there, okay? Um, 
But it says, then Jesus' disciples said, now you're speaking clearly, which, by the way, he was. I mean, this was, this is the best, this is the most accessible summary he'd ever given them. And they say, wow, now we can start to see things. Now, here's what Jesus does. You know, Jesus is not usually ironic, but occasionally he can be ironic, which, by the way, means it's okay to be ironic, but you shouldn't do it all the time. Look what he says. Do you now believe? Oh, you believe, do you? And then he says, but a time is coming, and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. Now, what he's saying is simple this. I mean, if you want to paraphrase, Jesus is saying, oh, you believe? Not really. Because I want you to know within the next few hours, you're going to betray me, deny me, and forsake me. If you took my doctrine, if you really believe my doctrine and it was in my, down deep in your heart, you would not be afraid of the world. That's what he's saying at the bottom there. If you really understood this fully, and if you really worked it into your heart, you would not be afraid of the world. But he says within hours, the world's going to, you know, you're going to be afraid of being imprisoned, you're going to be afraid of, of, of being um, uh, maybe even put to death, and you're going to run. So you say you believe it, well, maybe you do, maybe intellectually, but it's not in your heart, it hasn't changed your life. And you know what? Most all of us in this room... If you're a Christian, you're somewhere, probably you're not, well, obviously, let's not be too mean to the, to the disciples. They still didn't, they still hadn't actually seen him die and rise from the dead, okay? And, you know, we know he died for our sins and rose from the dead. I don't think they really understood that. Nevertheless, we're somewhere between them and where we should be. Because we also, you know, are, have not really brought this in. How do you get this doctrine into your life so it really changes you? There's two, two things he, at least he mentions here. One is, it says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. So the first thing I think he's saying is, when you're having trouble in the world, that's when to take heart, which is that's when to grasp this doctrine. Um, I wish I didn't have to say this. Every time the Bible, sh every time I have to say it because it's in the Bible, I, you know, I, I've, I don't want to have to say it, but I have to say it. The Bible says, in, in general, you spiritually grow better when you're having trouble. You spiritually grow more than when, uh, on stormy days than sunny days, as it were. Um, for most of us, you'll never find out that Jesus is all you need until you get into a situation where Jesus is all you've got. Or... Put another way, um, it's, you know, the Bible's constantly saying that the way God builds you up spiritually is by taking things away that you tend to rely on for your peace, and then it makes you rely on God. Then you find out, my goodness, God was a far better thing to lean on than the thing I was le leaning on before. If you lay in bed for a week and don't get up, you probably won't be able to get up. Some of you have have been bedridden for a while. You remember how you like your, you can't believe it. You've been in bed for a long time. You get up and you can hardly walk. Why? Your muscles atrophy. Whereas when you're in the gym and you're feeling like you're dying, your muscles are getting stronger. When you feel like you're getting weaker, you feel like you're getting stronger. When you feel like you're resting, you're actually getting weaker. And there is a spiritual analogy. <laughs> and that is simply that when the things are worse, 
And when the things are at, at their worst, that's when you take this doctrine, moves from being something abstract and actually starts to make a change in your life. When Kathy and I were about 20 years old, uh, a book came out, and I think it was a, just around that time. It was Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And if you were a, a new Christian or a young Christian at that time, you would be, uh, uh, everybody read it. And there was a chapter <clears throat> near the end called These Inward Trials. And at the end of the book, the chapter, there is a hymn by John Newton, you know, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace? And it's, uh, when Kathy and I first, all of us young Christians, we read that, we were young people, and we said, wow, that's interesting. We had no idea. But here's how it goes. I'll only give you three stanzas, uh, which will help you trace it out, not the whole thing. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Instead of this, he let me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayers for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from pride and self to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thine all in me. And when Kathy and I read that as 20-year-olds, we had no idea that this would be the key to the rest of our lives. Go get the book, Knowing God, read the chapter, read that hymn, and you'll have the key to the rest of your life. So first of all, it's when you're in the world and you're having trouble that doctrine becomes part of you. It becomes strength, becomes reality. But how exactly? Well, look at this term, take heart. Basically, the second thing is in trouble, you must take heart. Now, <laughs> that's not very revealing, that way that's translated, though it's not so bad. Uh, there's some other uh, translations that say, be of good cheer. <laughs> that's even worse. Um, you know what the word means? It's a very specific word. It means to dare. That's why I like it so much. It means to, to dare. To dare? Yeah. It says, dare to believe that I've overcome the world, and you will overcome the world. Dare to believe. How does that work? It means step out in faith and live as if all the things I've told you are really true. And as you do that, as hard as it is, you do that even though it doesn't feel true. <clears throat> you, you step out and you dare to believe and live as if all the things I told you is true, and that will change you. Let me give you two examples. One is, you should dare to rest your identity in Christ. It's pretty interesting. Earlier this week, I was at a conference and I was speaking on Galatians 6.14. It's really hard. And then I, here I am speaking on this passage and, and the two passages are very similar. Jesus is telling us to do something that Paul tells us to do. In, in Galatians 6.14, he says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. 
Now, what does it mean the world is crucified? It doesn't mean the world's crushed or destroyed or something. It means that it's, I'm dead to it. <clears throat> it means that I can get into a place where the world can't scare me, it can't bother me, it can't, it can't intimidate me anymore. It has no control over me. Well, how does that work? Well, he says you have to boast. You have to boast in the cross of Christ. Now, boasting in ancient times was actually the way <clears throat> warriors got ready to charge. So they would say, we've got, uh, we've got the, the armor, and we've got the best captain, and we've got this, and we've got that. And by boasting, it was called a ritual boast in, in warfare, they got themselves ready to charge. But Paul takes that idea, that idea of ritual boasting, and he, he applies it in a different way, metaphorically, and he says, well, there's a certain sense in which every human being has to boast in something. Every human being has to get their strength and their confidence from something, then what is it? If it's from your talent, if it's from your, your social status, if you say, well, look what I've achieved in life, or look at my job, or look at how talented I am, or look at this person who loves me. If you take your strength and identity from anything in this world, the world controls you. Why? Because the world can take that away. That's why the disciples all scattered. The world can take away your social status. The world can take away your possessions. The world can take these things away. And then you melt down because it's your boast. It's your identity. It's, 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 you know, it's your confidence. It's your strength. But what if you dare to believe that your love because of the cross of Jesus Christ, not because of any of your performance, not because of anything you've ever done, what if you actually say, I'm going to dare to rest my identity in what Jesus Christ has done for me, knowing that the Father sees me as a beauty. The Father sees me and loves me. You know what that means? Paul actually gives you an example of it. In Romans 8, Paul actually gives an example of what Jesus tells you to do here and what Paul himself tells you to do in Galatians 6.14. In Romans 8, listen, he's going through the doctrine. He says, he says <clears throat> uh, it is Christ who died who is risen, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who ever lives to intercede for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Did you see what he just did there? In other words, he's going through the doctrine. It's what Jesus says. Think about these things. It's what Paul says in Galatians 6, 4. Think about the cross. He's going through. He said, Jesus died for me. He's risen for me. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father for me. He's interceding for me. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he says, well, you know, famine or, or nakedness or peril or sword. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor anything to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is he doing? He's doing exactly what Jesus Christ says here. He says, dare to look at the world and say, world, you've got nothing I need. You may take away this, you may take away this, you may take away this. These are good things, but they're not the ultimate things. Economic problems, I've got the ultimate riches in Christ. Relationship problems, I've got the ultimate love in Christ. Dare to rest your identity in that, especially during the tough times, and you'll be different. You will be different. But here's the other thing, last thing. Another way to dare, <laughs> take heart, dare to believe I've overcome the world. It's not just something you do uh, by daring to rest your identity in Christ, but also when, when things are really bad in your life, 
and you don't feel like God loves you, dare to live as if he loved you. In other words, look at what Jesus Christ has done for you and say, even though it doesn't feel like it, dare to believe that he loves you even when you don't feel loved. And boy, that changes you. In 1874, uh, Horatio Spofford, who was a Christian lawyer, I think, um, he had a wife and four children, and he put his wife and four children on a, a ship going to Europe for a tour, and this is 1874. There was an accident, the ship sank. The wife was actually found unconscious, clinging to debris, and she was rescued, but the children were all, the children were all dead. So she comes back to her husband, comes back to America, and they... Um, they wrestle, how can we as Christians, we just feel like, how could God do this? But here's what they did. We know what they did. We know how they got through it. Because Horatio Spofford wrote one of the more famous hymns, and we sing it here. It goes, when peace like a river. So get the, listen to it. Now, in light of what he went through, listen to what he did. It actually tells you how he processed it. It goes like this, if you remember. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Now you know why he said that. Hmm? Next time you sing that, remember that. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You know, the world cannot deal with the things that make my soul well. Well, you say, how did he do that? Well, here. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. Okay, what is that? That Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Now that's what he did. Look what he did. Here's the thing that controls him. He says, I don't feel love, but here's the thing I know. See, he's daring to believe this. Jesus Christ died for me. You know... Um, Jesus, I'm giving you my peace. You know why I can give you his peace? Isaiah 57, verse 50, oh yeah, Isaiah 57, verse 20 says this. The wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest. There is no peace for the wicked. Now watch Jesus Christ in his last hours. The Garden of Gethsemane, going to the cross. Does he have a smile on his face? Does he say, oh, I'm just trusting the Lord? I've got inner contentment. Is it, does he say that? No. You know why? He didn't have it. Why? When he gets to the cross and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He had no peace. You know why? He was in our place. There is no rest for the wicked. And he was being, God made him sin, made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, Jesus Christ was treated the way we deserve, as the wicked. He had no rest. Why? So you could have peace. He lost his peace so you could have peace. He suffered, he suffered. And instead of Horatio Spofford and his wife looking at themselves and saying, well, if God loved me, he would never have let this happen. Instead, he looked at the cross and said, I know God loves me. Because he suffered far worse than I did. I know the Father loves me. Why? Because the Father looks at me and says, I know what it's like to lose a child. And when I see a, a God like that, then I dare to live loved even when I don't feel like I live loved, and that will transform you. That will give you a peace that you didn't know you could possibly attain.
I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for giving us your peace. Thank you for giving us your peace the way you do. You don't give it to us just by somehow infusing it in us. You say, here's the doctrine, here's the Bible, here's the things that my son Jesus Christ did for you. Know them, learn them, memorize them, meditate on them, pray about them, sing about them into your heart until you more and more your heart's changed. And we pray, Father, when trouble comes, and it will come, we will have trouble in the world, uh, show us how to dare to believe that we are as loved as we are. Teach us how to rest our identity in Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we do take heart because you've overcome the world. Thank you. Give us all these things. We ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you were encouraged by today's teaching, please rate and review it so more people can discover this podcast. And thanks for listening. This month's sermons were recorded in 1997 and 2017. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017 while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.